Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon. We have a special guest today from the Age of Napoleon podcast, Everett Rummage. Everett, say hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. If anyone has not listened, this is by far the dean of all Napoleon podcasts out there. It's the best one. I think it's fabulous. Age of Napoleon, wherever you listen to podcasts, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. And it's an honor to have Everett on the phone today. You're too kind. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And our subject matter today is also an interesting person, uh, Pasquale Paoli, who was Napoleon's hero for quite a while, was he not? Yeah, uh, Napoleon actually wrote him fan letters as a young man. That's what a big fan he was. Mm. And he was also, you know, a general. He led forces in the fight for Corsican independence, uh, Napoleon's home island. And he just had an interesting career. So I thought that's why we talk about him today. Yeah, let's dive into it. All right. So uh, Mr. Paoli was born in Corsica in April 1725. And he was the son of a physician who was also a leader in the push for Corsican independence. So it seems to me the, the island of Corsica has had like many rulers and masters and conquering armies over the years. But it's it's an interesting place, correct? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's rarely been self-governing throughout mm -hmm. its history. It's almost always been dominated by others, as you pointed out. But it's always sort of remained separate from whatever empire or alliance or coalition was in charge of it. You know, the Corsicans have always been the Corsicans. You know, mm -hmm. conquerors come and go, the island stays the same. Right, right. And around this time, that at least the portion of the story that we're going to focus on, um, the early part, it was, I believe, um, run by the Republic of Genoa in Italy, correct? Right. Um, and, you know, Corsica being close to Italy has historically had lots of links to various Italian states. Um, but at this period, uh, Genoa was top dog and at least in theory in charge of the island. Right. And the Genoese uh, really treated Corsica more like it was a colony than a part of their country. You know, it was a source of revenue and a place that had to be, you know, kind of kept under the heel, so to speak. Right. So, um, so it was not a very benevolent regime that the, the Corsicans were rebelling against. Right. So they always had like some sort of garrison of troops there to kind of keep an eye on the Corsicans, I would imagine. Right. And make sure they paid their taxes, which the Corsicans were not fond of doing. Yeah. Yeah. So interestingly enough, though, because uh, Paoli's father was somewhat well off, he was educated in Italy, correct? In Naples? Right. Um, this is, I, I think, kind of uh, important and uh, sort of underrated part of Pauli's stories. He, um, you know, his father was a, a leader in the Corsican independence movement. And the Corsican independence movement was uh, extremely fractious, lots of infighting, mm -hmm. you know, even like literal combat between different factions among the Corsican uh, rebels. Mm -hmm. And um, his father came out on the losing side of one of these struggles. And so the, the family went to exile in Naples. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Naples, uh, Pauli got a, well, maybe not a first-rate education, but a very good education in a relatively modern university mm -hmm. um, and got some military experience in a you know, traditional military. He's, he's often portrayed as this kind of rustic bandit chieftain, which he sort of was, but 
he also had this other side to him that, you know, had been to university, lived in a big modern city, had been a trained officer in a, in a real military. Yeah, but like an enlightened thinker, kind of like Napoleon, like a Renaissance man, but who happens to be in the army. Yeah, um, but who also has these roots in a, in a very um, traditional, out of the way kind of place. Mm-hmm. So he kind of knocks around Italy for a while and then returns to his home island of Corsica. And then he kind of gets involved in politics as well, right? Yeah. And, you know, this was probably Corsica is a very, um, I mean, everywhere in the world at this time, family ties are much more important than they are in our world today. Right. Um, but Corsica in particular is a place where family ties are very important mm-hmm. and um, it has a clan system. So uh, political mm-hmm. loyalties are inherited. So it was probably almost inevitable that his father being you know, a prominent political leader in the independence struggle, that that would then be passed down to Pauli. And he became, you know, sort of stepped into his father's shoes and returned to Corsica and tried to you know, rally his, his father's former loyalists. Yeah, and and you know he works his way up, and sure enough, in 1755, Corsica declares its independence. You know, way before the United States did, and made Paoli its first president, which I think is a pretty amazing rise to power. Right. I mean, he's in his 30th year at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's uh, you know, for this era, you know, political leaders did tend to skew a bit younger than they do today. Yeah. But. Um, 30 is quite young, yeah, uh, particularly well, given that, you know, his young adulthood was not spent in Corsica. He was still in Naples. Yeah, very Napoleon-esque, if you will. Right. Yeah. So from there, though, obviously Genoa, you know, they're not having this. They're going to squash this rebellion. And it seems like there's ebbs and tides, you know, ebbs and waves of like either they were, were able to govern themselves briefly until like another Genoese garrison would show up and put everything down. Is that kind of how it went for a while? Yeah, you know, Genoa at this period was sort of, um, you know, historically they had not been a big uh, military power in the sense of raising forces from their own population. Um, Historically, they generally used mercenaries to do most of their fighting. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this struggle with Genoa is uh, dictated by the budget of the Genoese state if they have mm-hmm. money for mercenaries and kind of a, you know, a, a will to, to try to enforce their, their rule on Corsica, they hire a bunch of mercenaries and send them out and right. the war heats up. Right. And then inevitably, you know, the Corsicans hang on and they're kind of Highland uh, strongholds. Uh, the mercenaries, you know, get sick and some of them go home and mm-hmm. some of them get killed. And right. over time they become a less potent force and the war kind of settles down Um and the Genoese sort of retreat. The Genoese had these um, these strongholds on the coast mm-hmm. that could be supplied by the sea. And so the, the Corsicans couldn't really besiege them right. uh, because they had no navy. Mm-hmm. And so when, when, the Cors- when the Genoese uh, war effort was at a low ebb, they would just sort of pull out of the whole country except for these little strongholds. Mm-hmm. And then, the, the, then Pauli and his government would sort of run the island. And then, you know, years pass and then... The course that the Genoese come back and, and try to do it all over again. Yeah. And this goes kind of on for about 13 years until 1768. And Genoa is seeking to rid itself of this troublesome island. So what do they do with it? Well, the French state at this time um, had been trying to expand in this part of the world and, and were looking for opportunities to do so. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
you know, Genoa, the <laughs> Gen- Genoa's legal claim on Corsica was not not worth very much to them in right. the state of things because they didn't control most of the island, and it was, you know, it was supposed this was supposed to be a source of cash for the Genoese state, and in fact, it was turning into a um, you know, a boondoggle because they were hiring all these mercenaries to try to keep it under control. Right. And so they wanted to get it off the books mm-hmm. and, you know, why not sell it to the French who right. were eager to, to expand in, in this part of the world. Yeah. And I think, you know, the French were probably, like you said, thrilled to expand their uh, colonialization and they immediately took over the island and defeated Paoli and his guerrilla fighters, I think pretty quickly. Yeah. The um, it's, it's honestly quite, uh, quite depressing to read about that campaign because, mm-hmm. you know, Pauli had been this very skilled uh, warrior, you know, and he'd held the Genoese at bay for so long and, and had so many kind of, uh, you know, well-practiced techniques to, to maintain at least, uh, at least the, the sort of Highland core of Corsica as a, as a free zone. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that those strategies were all geared towards these small Genoese mercenary armies so when the French come in with a real, you know, top professional, professional military, yeah. Yeah. lots and lots of troops, yep. there is just nothing the Corsicans can do. Yeah, I was reading about that as well. His resistance army is made up of militia leaders, like you said, who had competing agendas and, and mercenaries with dubious loyalty, you know, Prussians and Hessians who are, you know, they'd fight unless the, the battle wasn't going their way. Then they would just, you know, flee into the woods. Right. And, and that's exactly what happened um, in some of these battles. Yep. And then uh, I guess in 1769, the year of Napoleon's birth, uh, Paoli was defeated at the Battle of Ponte Novo, and he fled to England in exile. And I think that's right. interesting that he would, that's where he flew to, <laughs> fled uh, for exile to England. Yeah. And boy, that turned out to be a very fateful choice for him. Right. Um, you know, he could have, he could have gone back to Italy where his father mm-hmm. had gone when the mm-hmm. same thing happened to him. Mm-hmm. And I guess in England, he was something of a celebrity. I mean, he was, from what I, I understood, he was showing his bullet-ridden coat to, you know, <laughs> you know, his fans and crowds out there. And I guess he was somewhat of a, somewhat of a celebrity at this time, right? Oh, I think somewhat is, uh, is not, not necessary there. He was <laughs> a very famous figure in England. Um, you know, he, uh, a lot of things about Pauli appealed to sort of the, enlightened opinion in England at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, this was the era of, uh, you know, this is this is the height of the Enlightenment, and London mm-hmm. is one of the centers of Enlightenment thought. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's so much about him. You know, Pauli loves um, making allusions to ancient Rome mm-hmm. and, com- you know, comparing himself um, and his government to the, you know, the, the great uh, heroic Republican governments of, of ancient Rome. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply the old Corsica was still represented in his government, but there were also a lot of progressive elements to it, which yeah. he of course emphasized when he was in England. Yeah. Um, so he really was seen as this kind of a sort of a, a rustic liberal hero. Yeah. And I, I was reading about that too. Like the, the old style of, of vendetta fighting where there was a high murder rate. He was trying to get rid of that. Like he was trying to 
have a more enlightened view of how to rule the island. Right. But he did not, you know, it's funny. He, he, there were some elements of sort of old traditional Corsica that he, he was trying to get rid of like the Mm -hmm. vendetta. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, he actually reinforced the clan system. Mm. So there were other elements where he, um, you know, he was quite a conservative and traditional leader, not unlike Napoleon in some ways, who also, you know, was sort of presented himself and was seen as a as an enlightenment figure and someone on the left, but also had all these sort of more conservative impulses and, and was perfectly happy to to um, to uh, compromise with conservatism when he thought it was in his interest. Right. And I guess around this time, the Bonaparte family, um, I don't know if Napoleon's dad knew Paoli, but they've become to they come to start associating themselves with him and idolizing the way he fought against the the French and, you know, that old quote about how uh, the French vomited themselves upon the shores of Corsica and how his, this brilliant man, Paoli, was fighting to repel them. I think he just, he saw a lot of himself in Paoli, correct? Correct. And he also, um, th- there is a, a family connection here. Um, mm-hmm. Carlo Bonaparte, or Carlo de Bonaparte, as he was right. known at that time, um, was Napoleon's father. And uh, in the very end of Pauli's rule in Corsica, uh, he was actually Pauli's personal secretary, mm. which, you know, that might not sound like much, but, you know, to put it in perspective, George Washington's personal secretary was Alexander Hamilton. Right. So, you know, this is a position at this time where um, that's someone who is being groomed for um, future um, political power because right. they, are, they get to meet all of the um, political contacts of, of yeah. their boss. We don't know exactly what Pauli would have done with Carlo if, you know, he hadn't been overthrown. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, certainly um, Carlo had reason to be loyal to Pauli. And the Bonapartes did, you know, fight on his side until the bitter end. Right. According to some stories, even Napoleon's mother was involved in the resistance to the French invasion. Yeah. Um, so this was, um, you know, Napoleon... Napoleon as a young man, I think, would would sort of romanticize and overemphasize his family's contribution to, to the Pauli movement. Right. Um, because he idolized him so much. Um, but there was this family connection that, that he was basing that on. That wasn't totally fantasy. Right. Right. Now, that's very interesting. And I want to talk about, you know, before we get to the French Revolution, he was before Paley went back to Corsica. There was some talk or some alluding to the British giving him a pension if he would push their interests if he ever returned to Corsica. Do you think that was legitimate? Did that really happen? Or was that more of a, a handshake deal? You know, I've never seen hard evidence of that. So I, I wouldn't know exactly what um, what the nature of that, that agreement or if it existed um, was. Mm-hmm. But I, it, it is worth saying, you know, whether or not they actually put pen to ink signed some kind of contract or if there was some kind of like you said a handshake deal right um they wouldn't have needed one right but after a couple of years in england Pauli right. became extremely I mean, he, he loved england right he loved the english mm-hmm. he admired their system of government he admired their intellectual life mm-hmm. he uh he was a, an anglophile and mm-hmm. he he really uh, you know he was there for a long time and it became a home to him and you know why not? These people, these people idolized him. Of course he liked it. There. Right. Well, I guess, and you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Of so. course. There's that element too. You know, if he ever hoped to get regain power, 
you know, Britain would be the likeliest way for that to happen. Indeed. Um, so moving along in the story, the French Revolution begins in earnest, 1789-1790. He returns to Corsica, and there's a young Napoleon now who's gone through the military schools and he's in the army. What what kind of happens there? Do they how do they come in contact again? There are many great stories about how um, Napoleon and Pauli finally met. Um, Napoleon had written him fan letters. Pauli had never responded to any of them. <laughs> um, you know, obviously busy man, very famous. He got a lot of fan letters. But you also have to wonder um, if uh, there were some hard feelings about Carlo Bonaparte because. Mm. Carlo Bonaparte had been invited to go into exile with Pauli. Mm. And many of those close to Pauli had gone to London with him. Carlo was one of the few who did not. Okay. And it seems that Pauli considered this a betrayal. Mm. Um, you know, maybe not treason or, you know, anything that grand, but that he, you know, that this hurt him and that he, it made him, it lowered his opinion of Carlo. Yeah. So maybe looking at that signature Bonaparte, seeing that he was a, a soldier in the French army, the army that Pauli had fought against, who had taken yeah. his government away from him. Yeah. He probably was not disposed to like Napoleon. Yeah. In fairness, though, Carlo, Paoli never had any kids, was never married. And Carlo was raising, you know, at this point, how many kids? So maybe he just, he's like, ah, I can't do that right now. I'm, I'm raising seven kids in Corsica. I can't, I can't just exile. Right. Yeah. To, to uncertain prospects in a, in a foreign country, we didn't speak the language. Correct. Correct. So, um, but the, um, when, when Pauli finally meets Napoleon, according to one story, um, uh, Napoleon and his, his brothers, uh, Lucien and Joseph, they, they, they were kind of a team at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and apparently the Bonaparte brothers, um, soon after meeting him, uh, sort of told him how wrong he'd been and how <laughs> and how how he could have done a better job resisting the French and you know, uh, if we'd only done this and this. That's not a good opener when you meet your hero. No. And, and you know, they had not been born yet when, right. when these events occurred. Right. So, you know, the idea that they're going to come in and play Monday morning quarterback um, <laughs> to this, this, you know, extremely respected aging general mm -hmm. uh, did not go over well. Mm-mm. And yeah, and of course, there were also the political, you know, the, the, the Bonaparte brothers were at this time, um, I mean, I you almost considered them on the radical left. I mean, they were on the uh, sort of furthest left of the, you know, mainstream political spectrum, mm -hmm. whereas Pauli, um, you know, had been seen as this big liberal hero um, for most of his life. But, you know, he'd been living in England and getting older and had sort of, you know, had never really been as far to the left as her, his reputation um, had suggested, and then with time had moved to the right. And so by the time he arrives in Corsica, he has a very different political outlook from the Bonapartes. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I read that, you know, Napoleon asked for uh, Paoli's opinion on his writings, and he found them to be amateurish and too impassioned, which probably makes sense if you're a centrist and some crazy leftist or rightist is asking <laughs> you for your opinion on his writing, you're going to be like, oh, it's, it's too much. Although it's worth mentioning about that, about that anecdote, when Napoleon originally sent Pauli his manuscript, Pauli didn't respond to it. Mm. Um, he only responded uh, months later after he had gotten in a political spat with the Bonapartes. Mm -hmm. So I think that was actually just pure pettiness. <laughs> that, you know, this is, and, and that really, you know, that shows you sort of the, um, the less, uh, 
the less savory side of Pally's character. You know, by this point, he's in his 60s. Right. And these are sort of enthusiastic um, young men in their early 20s. Yeah. And you would think that as annoying as they probably were, you know, he would, as a, you know, statesman in his 60s, you know, take a sort of more gentle approach. Now, this next part is interesting to me. In 1793, Paoli sought to conquer the neighboring island of Sardinia. Now, was this a legitimate plan that he wanted to do this, or was he just trying to get rid of Napoleon in this fool's errand? This whole story is very weird. Yeah. Um, this is not a very well-known part of Napoleon's biography, and I think people gloss over it just because it's early and it's kind of strange and it's hard to hard to really judge you know what was going on there i think what happened is so this wasn't this was ordered by the government in paris chris um this strike on uh, sardinia yep and i think that in part they were sort of unsure if they could trust Pauli, and so they asked him to do something you know to you know risk some of his resources the corsican national guard um to further the revolution Right. You know, basically as a loyalty test to see if he would do it. Because you're you're supposed to be ruling Corsica in our stead or, or or at least in our interest, correct? Right. Yeah. He's he's kind of the regional governor at this point. Got it. Um and so and they're and they're just, you know, he's kind of an unknown quantity because he's been in London for so long. Right. Um and you know, is he purely self-interested? Does he think his self-interest aligns with us? Does he is he just sitting on the fence? Well, one way to find out is order him to do something and see if he complies. Right. And he did, but the the government in Paris told him to send 10,000. He sent 6,000. Right. Um all of the all of the guardsmen he sent came from regions where he was not as popular and were led by people including Napoleon who were affiliated with the revolutionary government who mm-hmm. You know, he would have probably seen as his political enemies. Mm-hmm. He puts one of his cousins in charge, overall <laughs> command. Nepotism. But, yeah. <laughs> right. Classic. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the, the junior people under his cousin are all sort of anti Pauli people, or at least people he would have perceived as being anti Pauli. Yeah. So probably he's hoping some of these guys die, probably including <laughs> Napoleon. Right, right. And I think that's the other point to point out uh, that Napoleon is not the all-knowing all-wise napoleon yet he's still a young man at this point yeah although he he himself performed pretty well in this expedition mm-hmm. in, the, in the limited role he had um but the the overall commander was extremely cautious and sort of the strategy is sort of unclear what he was even trying to do mm-hmm. um the island that they were attacking had been reinforced uh, mm-hmm. heavily right before the attack Mm-hmm. So it sort of seems like maybe someone was tipped off, yeah. maybe by Pauli. Yeah, and the invasion was a disaster. And like I said, it seemed like the Sardinians were waiting for them. And Napoleon was defeated along with the rest of the strike force. Yeah, now, I mean, he um, he and his men ended up having to abandon their guns. Yeah. Um, which is not something Napoleon liked to do. No, or, or any army. You hate to abandon the cannons for sure. Now, obviously, this enrages Napoleon, and he goes back to Corsica, and then the story really gets interesting from there. Right. Napoleon um, and some of his fellow officers, worth pointing out, um, writes a letter to the revolutionary government, um, basically laying out what we've just been talking about, that (laughs) something (laughs) seemed very wrong about this whole operation. Right. Um, And laying out, you know, 
if something was wrong with it, the uh, the motives and the, um, the 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 person behind this are, are pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an explosive letter, mm-hmm. um, but it is secret. Mm-hmm. This is a you know this is a classified military report, right? Um, so there's still not a public schism between the Bonapartes and Pauli. Mm-hmm. But then Lucien Bonaparte, who's very young, still a teenager at this point, <laughs> gives a speech uh, at a Jacobin club in southern France. Right. And that speech is basically a denunciation of Pauli, which up until now, the Bonapartes have been afraid to do. Right. And he really laid into him, called him a traitor and a liar. And no one knows exactly how this happened, but it turned out to be a very important moment in history. <laughs> Someone wrote that speech down and published it. Wow. With Lucien's name on it. Mm-hmm. And so that <laughs> went all over Southern France. Wow. You know, all the Jacobin clubs were reading these speeches and yeah. that one was one of them once it spread. So of course, Pauli found out about it very quickly. Right. Um, and uh, was not pleased. <laughs> I can imagine that. I mean, you're a 65 year old man or 60 year old man and some 18 year old at a club and, Francis uh saying these outlandish things about you well and he'd already had his conflicts with the Bonapartes and you know he was sort of at the end of his rope with them anyway right so you know to, to, to be the straw that broke the camel's back I mean this is like a a massive like 40 ton straw like just completely obliterating any hope of uh, ever having a relationship um a positive relationship with Pally. So the reaction is basically the Bonaparte family has to flee with basically the clothes on their back, correct? Right. And this is, uh, to me, um, you know, uh, one of the key moments of Napoleon's life. I mean, he has, I mean, not only beyond failed, everything is lost. The government mm-hmm. has seized the family's lands and properties. Mm-hmm. Um, he is an outlaw. Right. And Napoleon has to make his way through the rugged interior of Corsica Mm -hmm. on foot Mm -hmm. to get to where he knows his brother is in a a friendly town where they can get a ship to France. Yeah. And um, he was very fortunate that he ran across some friendly shepherds. The first people he encounters on this, you know, this harrowing trip Mm -hmm. are people he knows who are friends of his family and they agree to help him and and they, they take him North with them. And um, you know, Decades and decades later, when Napoleon died, all those men who had helped him on that trip when he was a young man were mentioned in his will and given huge benefits. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. But yeah, you wonder, like, the history of Europe would have been a lot different if uh, Paoli and his supporters had had caught up to Napoleon and his family. Or, I mean, frankly, if anyone except those guys (laughs) had caught up to him. I mean, really, the whole island was after him. And he Mm -hmm. was incredibly fortunate that, you know, the rather than running into anyone else, he ran into people who were inclined to help him. Right. Well, you think now with this pesky Bonaparte family out of the way, Paoli's good to go in Corsica, but I guess that uh, is not the way it went, correct? Right. Um, you know, this is uh, th- this persecution of the Bonaparte family um, coincided with a, uh, a general purge of um, sort of a pro-revolutionary, pro-French people in Corsica. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Pauli really, you know, this is like a, I think the political science term is an auto coup. He's sort of illegally cementing his power as dictator and, <laughs> and rounding up his political opponents. Right. Um, and invites in the British, you know, as he perhaps uh-huh. promised two years ago. Right. Um, but 
uh, many people on Corsica did not accept this. Mm-hmm. And there was a resistance movement against him, mm-hmm. uh, led by a, a former count named Casabianca, who um, turned out to be a, a good military leader. And uh, there turned out to be a lot of opposition to Pauli in Corsica. So there's a very bloody and bitter war as um, Pauli and the British um, cement their control over the island, which um, obviously did not engender good feelings with a lot of the population. Right. And so in 1795, he has to flee again. He has to go back to England, I guess, because it wasn't going, things weren't going his way. No, I mean, he, um, you know, his second, his first tenure as dictator of Corsica, he'd shown so much promise. He'd been so effective, um, you know, not only promoting his own interests, but, uh, you know, in building bridges and mm-hmm. keeping this very fractious um, Corsican political system, uh, you know, under harmonious and uh, under his control and developing the country. Um, but his second tenure is much rockier. He doesn't seem as sharp. Um, he's much less popular and he seems not to care. You know, that, that pettiness we saw with him, um, you know, trashing Napoleon's writing uh, <laughs> seems to have become a permanent character trait at this point. You know, he's he's very vindictive and bitter. Um, the British don't enjoy working with him and, yeah. and uh, wind up kind of undermining him and, and trying to promote sort of alternative pro-British Corsican leaders, but that doesn't really work out very well. Um, so it's kind of a sad story. Um, and yeah. as you said, in, in 95, uh, he's back on a ship to England. So what becomes of this grumpy old man? He's lost his dictatorship now twice, and he's heading back to the uh, the British Isles. Yeah, and this is kind of, you know, the 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 tragedy side of the of the arc. People in England are not as hot on him anymore. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with the war raging, there's new heroes and new villains and, and exciting new things happening in the world. Um, and people are focused on that rather than on something that happened, you know, decades ago. Right. And of course, there are people who are aware that he has not been so helpful to British interests and, and, and you know, hold him in contempt because of that. Right. Um, but he does still have his admirers. And so he lives, you know, a relatively comfortable life. Um, but as far as we can tell, he's not doing much during these years. Right. And then he passes in 1807. So before really the Napoleonic epic ends, he's kind of like right in the middle of the empire uh, passes. Um, it, it's an interesting legacy. And I, I, I have two questions to kind of wrap up on. Uh, one, what is his legacy? And two, do you think there would have been a Napoleon without this man um, kind of inspiring him or, or at least lighting a lantern to lead the way for his career, Napoleon's career? Hmm. Well, in the first question, um, his legacy, I'm always fascinated. You know, I think if you could go back and talk to people in, you know, say the 1770s mm-hmm. um, and, and, and say... And, and you told them that, that Pauli was not a name that even educated people know, mm-hmm. um, that he's, you know, a, kind of an obscure figure who's only really known to, to students of, I mean, really, if it wasn't for Napoleon, pe- most people would not know who he is. Right. I, that would shock people in the 1770s. I mean, he was a global celebrity, mm-hmm. um, one, one of the first, you could argue. Um, and so the, I think that's an interesting part of his legacy uh, to, to go from someone who's almost universally admired and, and almost universally beloved to someone who's not even really remembered uh, is, is a fascinating uh, change. Um, but it's worth mentioning, um, he is still very much remembered in Corsica. 
mm-hmm. um, and sort of what you think about Pauli in Corsica has a lot of uh, resonance on modern politics. Yeah, um, because there is a Corsican nationalist movement today, um, some of whom want sort of more uh, autonomy and cultural recognition and linguistic recognition, uh, and then a more radical side that want independence from France. Um, and this was um, in the 70s and 80s, this was a, a very big and vital question in Corsican politics. I mean, there were even terrorist groups that fought. Right. And um, Pauli's legacy is very important to the Corsican nationalist movement. A yeah. lot of these organizations are named after him or have his 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 picture as their symbol. I mean, he is really still uh, among that that uh, it should be said, relatively small segment of Corsican society. He, he is still an icon, you know, and has continued to be, you know, that they, they, they have never forgotten him. Yeah. And I was reading, you know, the American Sons of Liberty movement was inspired by him. Yes, there was a lot of in the American Revolution. There was a lot of um, of love for Pauli, which is why there's so many places in America named after him. Yeah, and and going back to your your point when you started, like in the 70s, 1770s, 1780s, the in 1776, the editor of the New York Journal described Pauli as quote the greatest man on earth end quote. Which, <laughs> I, I mean, that's amazing that he was that legendary and famous, like you stated earlier. I remember um, I, I read a historian once who compared him to um, Che Guevara in the 60s. Yeah. And just, I, you know, what a, you know, how anyone in the world who saw themselves as a, you know, a progressive on the left, whatever you want to call it, maybe, maybe they didn't agree with everything he did, but they all looked up to him and saw him as an icon and, you know, a symbol of sort of, you know, positive change in the world. Right. Right. And, and well-educated like Che. I mean, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And also with, you know, uh, Pally's father was a physician. Che was a physician. That's right. That's right. Now on my second question, that one's a bit trickier. What do you yes. think would have been a Napoleon without this man's influence? I mean, that's impossible to say, obviously. <laughs> yeah. um, I will say this. Uh, I think Pauli looms extremely large in napoleon's life um Mm -hmm. maybe if you're looking at influence of influences on him as a child Mm -hmm. maybe only his parents loom larger right Um, i mean he was napoleon was practically obsessed with this story for most of his childhood and young adulthood Mm -hmm. um and i think you know he picked up a lot of things maybe not even consciously you know, for instance, his house, the, where he grew up, was sort of a de facto clubhouse for veterans of Pauli's, uh, Pauli's forces. Mm-hmm. So he was around, I mean, not only his father and mother who had known these people and part of these events, but he, a lot of adults he was around as a young man had, had, been, had been important players in these events. Mm-hmm. And so I think that instilled in him the sense that yeah, anyone can play a role in history. It doesn't matter if you're from this out-of-the-way island, you know. You yeah. Look, I mean, the the, the greatest icon, uh, the, the greatest liberal icon of this era was born only a few miles away. Why not me too? Yeah. And that's, that's something you see even very young. Napoleon I mean, almost assumed that he would become a great man of history. Yeah. And I think that without that influence of Pauli, that idea maybe not would not have been so strong or maybe not as well-formed. And I also think, you know, because when Napoleon was a young man, 
Pauli's sort of credentials as a man of the Enlightenment, a man of reason, uh, a man of progress, a liberal, were you know impeccable. You know, as we discussed, that 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 reputation is maybe not totally deserved because he also had this sort of conservative side, and mm-hmm. and a lot of his image as a liberal icon was you know marketing by him. Right. Um, but I think that that did create in Napoleon's mind the idea, maybe not create, but contribute to the idea in Napoleon's mind that, you know, being uh, a reformer, a progressive, uh, whatever you want to call it, a force for change in the world is not necessarily um, in opposition to being a dictator, a sort of ruthless military leader, um, a person who, um, you know, dominates the political scene rather than sort of collaborating right. um, with other political actors. I mean, Pauli was a dictator in every mm-hmm. sense of the word, and mm-hmm. he could be tyrannical. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, Napoleon, you know, so, he, he was an icon. He didn't see this as a contradiction. He saw that you could be a, a, a force for change in the world and a, and a good liberal while also being a, a tyrant. Right. Right. Yeah, you can you can have different facets to your, your personality and your leadership style, I guess, is, is where you're, what, what I kind of take away from that. Yeah. And, you know, I think today we, we see, um, you know, we see sort of uh, democracy, egalitarianism, a sort of synonymous with progress. Mm-hmm. And, and that was not true at this time. And I think, you know, in fact, for Napoleon, Pauli would have been the natural model and Pauli didn't believe that at all. Right. So, you know, when people look at Napoleon as this kind of contradictory figure, well, that's really more from our modern perspective. Right. You know, in Napoleon's mind, you know, his his icons uh, of progress and liberalism are not democratic, are not egalitarian. Mm-hmm. You know, it is it's this guy who was a who was a, a guerrilla chieftain. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like his heroes from old Alexander the Great or Julius, mm-hmm. you know, those were. Not necessarily the most liberal of men. No, I mean, in a certain sense, they were, you know, progressive, you could argue, um, Mm -hmm. because they, you know, they gave, you know, important new institutions and improved their people's standard of living and all that. Right. But, you know, there's, there's definitely not, there's definitely not a, a sort of democratic subtext to any of that. That was Mm -hmm. all just shamelessly imposed from the top. Correct. And Napoleon, you know, saw that as a perfectly natural model. And I right. think in large part because of Pauli. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Well, that was mind blowing. I, I learned so much right in that, that chat right there. That I, I didn't know this is really an interesting man. And uh, I think he does deserve more examination. Um, like you said, uh, 200 years ago, he's the most famous man on earth. So yeah, I think it's, he deserves more attention than he gets. And um, I'm glad you, you educated all, all of us on that. I think it was really interesting. Thank you. I, um, you know, personally, I mean, it probably came through on the show. I, I personally am very fascinated by Pauli. Yeah. And when I first started doing my show, I was kind of trying to decide how to cover Napoleon's childhood. And I thought, yeah. you know what, this is such a huge influence on Napoleon. And I, I find him so fascinating that I'm really going to just go for it and do a lot of content on Pauli. You know, <laughs> Whatever, whatever the listeners can make of that, what they will. Um, <laughs> but I was surprised to, to find that actually um, he's kind of a fan favorite of my listeners. Really? People loved hearing about this guy. And I, I get questions still about him all the time. Interesting. Um, so I think that this is a, a person who I'm hoping that means he's going to you know, start to be getting his due in the future. Right. For sure. 
Well, Everett, thank you for being on the show. This was really great. I, I appreciate all that information and uh, well done, sir. Well, thank you very much. I had a great time.